Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Don, and Dude. Ah, uh, uh, I'm still alive. Album <laughs> <Tell> Nerds Podcast. <laughs> I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me. We're all pretty excited to spend a little time in the Emerald City, wouldn't you say? Andy, how you doing? Yeah, doing great, buddy. Tell you how dedicated I am to the show. I uh, haven't showered in the past two weeks. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if that's uh he's grungy if that's very kind to the citizens of the beautiful city of Seattle. <laughs> well, they're out in the rain all the time, so they get cleaned off that way. Nature's shower right there. Nature's shower. Don, yeah. how you doing? I seem to recognize your face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your singing can be delightful, but Mr. Edward Vetter does not appreciate that. I don't think. We'll have to ask him. All right, yeah, so this is the Album Nerds Podcast. We love albums, the album format, talking about music. And this week we're going to be talking about artists from Seattle, Washington, beautiful Pacific Northwest city. And we've got a great show for you. We're going to go through our listening week, talk about some of the albums that we considered for today's show. Then we're going to go through our individual album selections. We're going to answer a question loosely related to today's topic. Then we're going to spin the wheel of musical destiny to find out what we'll talk about next time. But this week, it's all about Seattle. That's what I'm talking about! Seattle, Washington is a large seaport city on the west coast of the United States, has a long history of contributions to popular music going back to the 1950s and 60s with acts like the Fleetwoods, the Whalers, and Jimi Hendrix. Most famously, Seattle is considered the home of grunge music, having produced such acts as Nirvana and Pearl Jam. The Seattle-based Sub Pop Record Company continues to be one of the world's best-known independent-slash-alternative music labels. And the city's, the city's musical legacy continues on. Today, each of us will present an album by an artist from the Seattle music scene. Seattle and its music, grunge in particular, holds a place in my heart as I was very into that in the 90s. You, know, you guys were not as uh, enveloped in its sounds. So I'm curious, uh, how'd you guys do? What'd you find? Uh, yeah, I was a little bit, a little bit young for the grunge phase, but I did kind of look back on it after a few years after it had passed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you came in just in time for Bush when it was <laughs> post-grunge. <laughs> yeah, for all the terrible parts. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for something a little bit off the beaten path, maybe a little bit more underground than some of the bigger names. I'll throw out a few that I enjoyed. The Fastbacks, their album Zucker, came out in 1993. Pretty enjoyable um, women-led punk rock group. Also... To the dude's recommendation, uh, the presence of the United States of America. <laughs> yeah, I did not like that at the time, but it's kind of cute. Not like going back. Yeah. Pretty fun record, the self-titled record. Yeah, from the mid '90s. Uh, funny, but also pretty interesting. Um, I also listened to a bunch of records from Pedro the Lion, kind of like uh, singer-songwriter, sort of emo, very, very underground feel to their material. Well, uh, I, uh, I I figured dude would have the the grunge angle covered. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I looked at uh, some other things. I've always been a, uh, you know, a, a fan of Modest Mouse. Uh, so I thought about doing their 2000 album, The Moon and Antarctica. I was also a big fan of the, the Fleet Foxes uh, first two albums, but I was particularly considering doing Helplessness Blues from uh, from 2011. Uh, and just for fun, um, because he's from Seattle, I, I checked out Kenny G, uh, his, al- 
album from nice. 1986, uh, <laughs> Duo Tones. Uh, how was that, Don? I don't know. It was it was relaxing. A nice little rainy day, mm-hmm. folding the laundry music. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It was. Uh, I I think he actually. Kenny G came out with an album specific to doing house chores, and each song is named after a chore. Yeah. You should check that one out. That sounds like a Brian Eno thing to do. But <laughs> So, Kenny G, if you're listening, I think I just gave you a great idea for your next record. I'll produce. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it was... I had some very obvious choices, and most of the albums were already in my head from bands like Pearl Jam and and Nirvana, most of which we've talked about on the show before. Heart, I considered Heart. uh, We talked about them somewhat recently, so I changed directions there. But I also listened to a little bit of hip-hop from Seattle just for fun, Macklemore, uh, Sir Mix-A-Lot. And I did get into a little bit of Shabazz Palaces, which was interesting. Oh my gosh, nice. I knew I was going to go to the well to one of my favorites, but I still explored a little bit anyway, because I didn't have to listen to the record too many times, because I've heard it a million. So why don't we uh, (laughs) get into our choices? You choo-choo choose me? And people seem to be shocked by the word bitch. Bitch is a good word. Means a woman who doesn't take any shit. Yeah. All right. For my selection, we are indeed talking about some bitches, uh, in particular, <laughs> seven-year bitch, the four-piece punk rock group from Seattle, Washington. We're talking about their second studio album entitled Viva Zapata. The album uh, takes its name from the uh, vocalist from the band The Gits, who were uh, mm-hmm. a punk rock group, woman-focused punk rock group from Seattle, a little bit popular a few years before this album came out, which was uh, 1994. Their vocalist, Mia Zapata, was raped and murdered a couple of years prior and kind of became a bit of a, a martyr for the uh, the Riot Girl movement, as well as kind of the Seattle uh, punk rock scene. Um, so we are going to play... A song that is specifically about this tragic event. This is called MIA. You know, I I couldn't help but get a lot of uh, Henry Rollins vibes from mm. some of the deliveries. I loved yeah. it. I thought it was really cool. Nice. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, it's a good comparison, okay. though, definitely. She also reminds me of, uh, what's her name? Tia Carrere, or whatever, from Wayne's World. Or <laughs> I see a man at the yes. back in a boat. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, that's just because we all watched Wayne's World a few weeks yeah. ago, so it's fresh in the <laughs> noggin. No, she has a very like stream of consciousness sort of delivery there, I would say. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting track there. It's literally just a message to to Zapata's uh, murderer, you know, kind of asking, you know, who are you? And, you know, uh, is this justice, you know, and why did you do this kind of thing? And I uh, found it really interesting. There was also um, one of the original guitarists from Seven Year Bitch died a couple of years previously due to some drug-related uh, issues. So there was a lot of just kind of death and... Uh, surrounding this group and this kind of general scene in Seattle at the time. Um, so they do focus on that a little bit on this record, but there are some some other interesting topics covered as well. 
the three words I use to describe this album are Riot Girl Solidarity. This really does feel like, you know, they're kind of representing the scene and kind of what it was like to uh, be a part of it in, uh, in the early to mid-90s here. The record itself, I think, is is pretty pretty good. It's very, very energetic, as you would expect, kind of like a ferocious energy throughout the album. Lots of... Uh, Lots of good grooves and, and hooks, um, but there are some moments that, like the dude was alluding to, that are a little more bleak and just kind of sparse and kind of in that, that Henry yeah. Rollins sort of vibe. But yeah, you know, overall, they were, they were new to me, but I, I find myself enjoying this quite a bit. It's not, it's not a particularly diverse record. But I think what they do, they do they do pretty well, and they mix it up enough to keep it interesting over the 30-minute runtime here. But yeah, why don't we play another cut from the record? This is Get Lit. world as we know it oh, yeah. sort of maybe that's <laughs> what i was drawn thing, to you know? it could be <laughs> um <laughs> the rem flavor was enough to yeah <laughs> get you interested yeah so no clue what that song was <laughs> is about uh, as andy said uh, you know it, it does seem like it's kind of stream of consciousness lyrics that's the the final cut on the album uh, and it has kind of you know quiet verses and then you know the the chorus that uh you know is is super fast uh, like that uh the the three words I, I chose to describe the album are screech free feminism actually i didn't i didn't come up with that uh that's from deborah frost of entertainment weekly um and i'm not even sure what that means um but uh, <laughs> i thought it was like a say by the bell <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh poor one out for for screech Dustin Diamond. Dustin Diamond. Yes. Yeah, I would say just the the album is it's mostly fast uh, and it's it's uh, amusing. Uh, I think what I I like about it, um, other than the songs that are about rape and murder, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a sense of humor I, I think in it. Maybe even though there is, you know, there are elements of of feminism. You know, maybe they're not taking themselves too seriously. Kind of reminded me of Anthrax uh, in that way. You know, who were sort of you know mm-hmm. that thrash metal, but sort of tongue in cheek. Yes, yeah, and. And, you know, it's it's less Sex Pistols, and I think it's more out of that, like, Black Flag, California yeah. kind of punk yeah. rock. I think unlike Bikini Kill, I, who was more screamy, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, this one, you can hear the vocals because it's mostly, like, a, a more, like, spoken word uh, approach. Yeah, yeah she's kind of a more clean approach to it. I mean, you're, it's not really even singing. It's like, yeah. it's kind of like, almost like beat poetry at times, you know? Yeah, very Michael Stipe. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of tracks that, that do seem to just kind of like fit that general kind of punk rock, like live hard and, uh, live hard, play hard kind of, which I appreciate. A couple of them are pretty, pretty strange too. There's a track uh, in the middle of the record called Cat's Meow that has some like really interesting uh, riffs and it's like, like some odd rhyming structures going on in it. It's kind of goofy, but also has like a weird, serious overtone to it. Yeah, there's quite a few tracks that really aren't very melodic at all. But yeah, why don't we play another one from the beginning of the record? This might be the, the most catchy or among the more catchy tracks on the album. This is called The Scratch. Quite a rhythm section, really. You know, yeah. it's groovy at times, which is really cool. I, I really enjoyed that those parts of of what they were doing, and 
the song is kind of the grungiest, yeah. perhaps, yeah. on the album, and maybe that's part of why I was drawn to it as well. It, you know, it explores the theme of intense desire and selfish longing for things. Gimme, gimme, gimme is how I would boil that song down. Um, I think it's probably not so much from a first-person perspective, but about the entitled people, you know, <laughs> would be my, uh, yeah. my estimation of that. To describe the album in three words, I went with punk truth reaction. It's punky. There's a lot of stark truths throughout the record, lyrically, especially with what uh, Mia went through. And then just it's a reaction to that and, and the loss of their bandmate. And, and it, it, we should say that uh, it, it so bands of the time, a lot of Seattle bands helped raise money to hire a private investigator because they, they could not find the, uh, the murderer. Yeah. And uh, in 2003, because science had changed and they had saved some DNA evidence, he was convicted, got 37 years. Yeah. Uh, so justice did come, but it was it was a long time, 10 years before that happened. So yeah, I mean, and the album also gets into another dark part of Seattle. A lot of artists were lost to drug overdoses, and that's woven in here as well. Yeah, it, it keeps your attention. I mean, lyrically, it's you know, but the sounds, the way that they work those those grooves and and mm -hmm. the kind of machine gun attack of the vocals at yeah. times works really well. Yeah, the rhythm of the vocals is is you know quite well done. Yeah, yeah, it's an important part of it. They never really broke through in terms of uh, mainstream appeal. They put out one more record after this and then uh, disbanded. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like they kind of just had a, a bit of a black cloud over the group here and um, never really got the big break they were hoping for. Well, and the industry turned its turned its back on Seattle, too, once the grunge thing dried up. Yeah, that spotlight kind of passed over. Yeah, well, I think that they did put out a pretty interesting crop of records here, and I think this this middle one here, Viva Zapata, was the most enjoyable to me, but if you're not familiar with the group they and you enjoy the style of music, I think they're pretty uh, pretty good representation of what was going on at the time and, and this kind of riot girl uh, movement that was uh, taking place in the early to mid-90s. So, once again, that was seven-year bitch, Viva Zapata. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. I think at this point in our career, we just want to make sure that with every record we make, we're making the best record we can with, with the material we have in front of us. But also trying to make sure that we're reminding people why they like our band or why they love the band. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget. Yeah, that, 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 guy, that guy's interviews are as interesting as his songs. <laughs> oh my gosh, let's yeah. not start the review like that. <laughs> <laughs> so my pick uh, for a Seattle artist is Death Cab for Cutie and their album Plans from August 2005. Um, this is the fifth studio album by the band formed in Bellingham, Washington in 1997. Uh, the band at the time was made up of songwriter, vocalist, and multi-instrumentalist Ben Gibbard, uh, multi-instrumentalist and producer Chris Walla, bassist Nick Harmer, and drummer Jason Micker. Let's hear the opening cut from the album. This is Marching Bands of Manhattan. disappointed that it wasn't a rundown of the different instruments and and such within the marching bands of uh, Manhattan but uh, oh and this one time at band camp so the 
<laughs> so I, I wanted to highlight that cut just because um, I, I really like that those those lyrics, you know, in the, the whole album. You know, I think every song has some sort of kind of, you know, clever lyrical metaphor or, or something. You know, the, the idea of debating half empty or half full and the cup of water filling up. I don't know. That's just, uh, that's good stuff. Um, also, you know, the interesting song structure with that one, all of a sudden, like two minutes in, they just keep repeating that, that same, uh, that same phrase. Mm-hmm. But, uh, anyway, so the, the three words I chose to describe the album are moody lyrical pop. You know, it's, uh, I guess typical of Seattle and rain, you know, there is sort of a, a, a moody vibe to, to most of their music and, and definitely, uh, on this album. It's somewhat, I mean, it's, it's poppy and I, I guess lightweight in, in some ways. And even though the lyrics are often dark, they're also, I guess like the clever metaphors and stuff, maybe give it a, a, a lighter feel. Uh, I also think Ben Gibbard's voice kind of has a lightness to yep. it. That's probably the, the one thing that maybe was a barrier to, to Death Cab to me at first was, was his voice. He kind of has that, uh, I don't know, that 90s indie voice, sort of that juvenile way of singing or yeah. something it's not it's not blink 182 but it's it, it has sort of a baby tone to it's it a very, it's a thin voice i would say i, th- I think it has a paul simon quality mm. in in some aspects as well and when i started looking at it from that perspective i was able to listen without prejudice nice. <laughs> because I've never really listened to them. The name of a band, Death Cab for Cutie, makes you think it's some kind of metal thing, right? It's what I thought <laughs> when I first heard of them. Yeah. I guess uh, I, I, the the name of the band is a reference to um, – did you ever see the movie Magical Mystery Tour? I think the band that's performing in that, the name of the yeah. song they perform is Death Cab for Cutie. Um, just kind of mm-hmm. nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's uh, let's hear more. Um, it's kind of a you know, it's a pretty diverse album, I think. Here's uh, "I Will Follow You Into the Dark." There's no one beside you when your soul embarks. Then I'll follow you into the dark. You so uh, and me. yeah. I'll follow you into the dark. I, I liked that it was an acoustic treatment and not filled with those morose sort of kind of bland sound of the band. I thought it was more interesting when it was just his voice and a guitar. Um, expressing love for his girlfriend, anticipating reunion after death, you know, heaven or hell, do they exist or is it just dark, right? I'll follow you into the dark and whatever that ends up being, if it's just dark, that's fine too because we'll be together. Uh, the three words I used to describe Death Cab for Cutie's album are long nap for the duder. <laughs> That's me. That sounds um, nice. Very sleepy. Mm-hmm. I also thought about what's left in the puddles, you know, after all the rain in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> this is the puddles. It's just a very sleepy affair. Um, it's my first experience listening to one of their albums. I think I've heard a couple of their songs. Once I heard the album, I recognized the voice. I just would have liked a few chaotic moments. I like bands like this are, are I enjoy, but I need I need at least a couple of the tracks to have something unexpected. And there was nothing unexpected once it started. It was kind of the same tone. It's pleasant, but it just didn't grab me in any way. So it's not that I think it sucks. I just didn't connect with it much. You know, like when you're traveling around and you get turned around. You look for landmarks to find your way back. There were no landmarks. 
Yeah. You know? Interesting. I think you might like the album that follows this maybe a little bit better, Narrow Stairs. Okay. A little more a little more rock and, and guitar driven, maybe maybe a little more edge than than this. Well, like uh Crooked Teeth was they you know, they do kind of a sleepy Beatles thing here and I thought Crooked Teeth was the best of that. Mm. You know, I thought that it was the most natural and interesting uh, of the songs that fit in that kind of mold. There is some I guess kind of overt sentimentality uh in, in the album which which I don't always love, but I, I think somehow like I enjoy it more. So even I'll follow you into the dark, you know, is just kind of very sappy and sentimental. But I think because it has sort of that darker, cynical element to it, you know, about there being nothing in the end, I, I like it. <laughs> that's yeah. that's done all the way, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, this this next song also uh, has elements of sentimentality. This is what Sarah said. Hello, cutie pie. <laughs> Sarah Connor. <laughs> Different Sarah. Alright, well, I mean, I will stand up for Mr. Gibbard and, and what Death Cab are doing here. I think this is pretty interesting stuff. Uh, yes, it is sentimental and it is maybe a little bit overly dark or, or at least always seems to fall back onto darkness, it would seem. Um, but I think it's pretty compelling stuff they're doing. I mean, that track there, you know, the, the lyric is, uh, love is watching someone die. I mean, wow, that's a pretty interesting statement. And, you know, I mean, we're all a little bit older now. I'm sure we've all been there when someone's passed away. And it's, it is a pretty, you really do have to care about someone to go through that moment with them. It's a pretty heavy, heavy thing to watch happen. And I thought that track really captured that sentiment really nicely. It really did. I, I can picture the scene, like the yeah, know, reek, the reeks hospital. of piss in 409 and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, some stench of death. Yeah. See, I think maybe it's just the delivery sound, like, and maybe this is intentional, but I didn't catch anything somber. So, therefore, I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics in the way of, of figuring out what's being said because it's like this tie your shoes, brush your teeth. It's, it could have been that. Like, really? it just, I mean, I think that piano is like really sad sounding. I mean, to me, I, I got a lot of emotion out of that. Um, but I think that is maybe the best representation of what I want this album to be is like, I think Ben does a great job and the lyrics are really interesting. His delivery, I think, grows on me after a while of kind of getting into that headspace. I just wish the band was a little bit, brought a little bit more dynamicness to the sound like it does sound very samey from track to track in terms of like the instrumentation and it seems like all they really do is either be loud or soft there's not a lot of interesting play within the amongst the instruments at least for me so the three words i describe this album are uber hipster emo um <laughs> this is very pre-uber in 2004 but or 2005 but it feels like a very a very like hipster album mm. to me i don't know how much of that that time period maybe that's where i missed the boat on this because at that time radio was changing people were starting to you know uh shortly we were able to buy mp3s and it just the the music scene was changing and i think i just was uninterested in anything that was of hipsterness at that time so i i just never really experienced them so i i it's only fair that I go listen to more of their music because I've been semi-harsh regarding these guys. I, I mean, there's <laughs> talent there for sure. But. It might even be like, I don't know, Don, what your thoughts on this, but like maybe it's a little bit intentionally off-putting to kind of 
keep out offsiders. I feel like hipsters are always like weed out the weed out the uncool guys like me. Yeah. Oh, maybe sort of. Yeah, yeah keep you guys okay, out. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's to keep yeah grumpy old old d bags out. I get it. Well done, Mister Gibbard. It's dense, man, and like it takes a while to get into. I I feel like even listening to it for like a week here, I'm still not exactly sure. I'm completely in line with it, but I I appreciate what Ben does lyrically. I think he's a very interesting guy, and I I really love that the Postal Service record. I think that maybe has a more interesting melodies on it compared to this record. But either way, I think Ben is a really quite a talent and and a pretty interesting guy. For me, it got better with every listen, and I probably only got to it maybe six times. So my harshness is already mellowed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely did enjoy several of the tracks so I, I was i was getting there i just needed more time okay with their album from 2005 called plans that's death cab for cutie what's the matter cutie did you like my joke <laughs> like that. excuse me i'd like to ask you a few questions all right it's time for deep questions with don so we've been uh, exploring the, the music scene of, of Seattle. Uh, what other things do you associate with Seattle? Uh, yeah, for me, so I mean, I work in the, the tech space. Uh-huh. So I, I mean, I always think about the two big tech companies that are in Seattle, uh, Microsoft and Amazon. Become a, a pretty big Microsoft fan, or I guess I used to hate Microsoft growing up, but now that I kind of think they're cool again. Amazon... I am so over Amazon. I don't know how you guys feel about Amazon lately, but I'm completely dependent on them. Unfortunately, like yeah, me too. I hate I'm that a, though. Like, I'm a puppy, and they're the they're the mama dog. <laughs> I just I yeah, it's a problem. It's hard to find anything online that doesn't is not on Amazon. You know, for terms of shopping. Well, see, yeah. I've. I've been beginning to explore what Walmart's offerings along the same lines, and they have some. <laughs> pretty quick delivery and stuff so yeah another great company yeah yeah that's the problem right (laughs) i know yeah so many choices here in our capitalistic society what about microsoft do you do you like yeah i just feel like they're they're kind of back on like the cutting edge of like what's happening there they're really buying into the the ai stuff and they're doing some good stuff with yeah obviously their cloud services are pretty dope and and edge has just revolutionized web browsing I would say Bing has made like a comeback lately. Uh, yeah. But yeah. How about how about you guys? Maybe something a little more fun than uh, corporations. <laughs> uh, I think about coffee. Coffee time. And the whole coffee shop narrative that came. Not only the the mu- the grunge movement, but around that same time, all of a sudden there were fancy little coffee shops with kooky paintings and. Uh, art everywhere and it was like a a cool hangout spot that didn't involve alcohol and i know that that's where starbucks came from but just the whole the whole coffee shop culture i really enjoyed that and that's where i would do poetry reading open mic stuff (laughs) you would be on the open mic oh yeah yeah dude open mic yeah yeah that's right wow (laughs) i would love to be a fly in the wall for that (laughs) you should have seen me (laughs) <laughs> I was I was gorgeous. Wow. You did it! Congratulations! World's best <laughs> cup of coffee. I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I love going to a good coffee shop to listen to some Death Cab. Yeah. Yeah. Like there. It's a match match made in heaven. I, well that's the place for it, I suppose. <laughs> I feel like you used to be able to buy their C D at Starbucks. <laughs> I once stopped at a 
uh, Starbucks to purchase a Jacob Dylan album that was exclusive. <laughs> to oh my it. gosh. Uh-huh. Jacob Dylan. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've never been to Seattle. I've never even really been to the, the West Coast. Um, so, all I know about Seattle is what I've seen on television or in film. So, um, you know, uh, of course, f- the, the television show Frasier, every episode has them hanging out in a, in a coffee shop. Um, and, you know, I, and that was right around the time Starbucks, you know, started taking over the entire uh, the yeah. entire country. Uh, and then I also think of the, the film Sleepless in, in Seattle. Right. Happened to be around the same time. Yeah. Too. So there was like a Seattle revolution in the 90s. Well, and and Niles was in Sleepless in Seattle as a brother-in-law or whatever, yeah. who was a psychiatrist. And then he ended up playing really? Niles Crane as psychiatrist. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wild. Right. Huh. <laughs> yeah, mind-blowing. Do you remember Tom Hanks' character lived on like a – his house was basically on stilts in the water. And it seemed like it was raining a lot in that movie. And Yeah, yeah that's, well, him and Jonah, you know, they, well, they had to go somewhere to mourn the death of, of his wife and Jonah's mother. Yeah, I, I saw that movie a bunch of times. Me too. I love I watch it at Christmas time. I enjoy it. I I've never seen it. I gotta check it out. But the music in it, which is really cool, is that it has nothing to do with the Seattle scene. Like there were movies that, like singles that I loved because it was about the Seattle rock scene and whatever. But Sleepless in Seattle had all that class, like Jimmy Durante and, and Nat King Cole. And- Make just one someone <laughs> happy. <laughs> I figured I could trigger Don. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That movie was just a, a, a different slice of using Seattle as a backdrop. Uh, I just think they just, they had a really good run there in culture. And the Mariners were actually pretty good at that time. Had Ken Griffey Jr. and that's true. Edgar oh, Martinez, yeah, Ken Griffey, Randy Johnson. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, what do you associate with Seattle? Let us know. Join us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Also on Discord, albumnerds.com/discord. H and G. Hi and goodbye. (laughs) Nirvana's fellow Seattle cohorts, Soundgarden, released a new album this week called Super Unknown, and critics are declaring the band's fifth album its most stellar to date. We visited the lads in their hometown and learned a bit about playing Spoons as well as Super Unknown. So I decided to go for the, the easy layup. I went with Soundgarden and their 1994 landmark album super unknown soundgarden formed in seattle washington in 1984 so they were working the scene for a while recording uh, independent labels and things and uh this retained the heaviness of the earlier releases but uh really went a little more diverse in the range of influences so why don't we get started with a little bit of spoon man the first single that was released from super unknown So that song was written by Chris Cornell and released February 14th, 1994 as the first single from the album. I remember going to a record store with my buddy Chris to get that single. We had to go to a couple of different locations to find a a CD single copy that they had in stock. And that was when I got super excited about this band. This album captured metal influences with this newly evolving style, experimental recording techniques, some Middle Eastern and Indian flavors, Beatles-inspired elements, alternative tunings, weird time signatures. I mean, these guys, it's 70 minutes of somehow interesting oddities because there are the heavy metal moments I'm looking for, but then all these weird guitar riffs and, and sounds. 
uh, the three words I'm going to use to describe this album are alive in the super unknown. It's a lyric from the title track, but the whole album does feel like the super unknown. Like I didn't know how to process this record as, as when it came out as a, you know as a young man. I mean, I'm sure that uh, Black Hole Sun was probably at the top of of playlists for you guys. What you know at the time, what. The, was this revolutionary to you or just more grunge? At the time, it, to me, it sounded like what I thought grunge was, which I didn't really understand, to be fair. <laughs> but I do remember Black Hole Sun being on the radio all the time, you know, for years and years after it came out. And I remember my dad listening to that for the first time and being like, oh, man, I really like this song. Like, it's the sound of it he was really into. And then he, like, heard the lyrical message and he's like, Andy, you can't listen to this anymore. <laughs> this is too dark. <laughs> Yeah, it really is lyrically dark, but I guess I didn't take it seriously. I just thought it was part of being Seattle. I didn't consider the source and what Chris Cornell may have been going through and how he was feeling and where this was coming from. I didn't think about that at the time. I just thought it was badass. Yeah, I experienced grunge mostly from afar. You know, I mean, I, I saw it all on MTV and I, I heard the, the records and stuff, but I, I never got really, you know, personally uh, in, invested in it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I've I've warmed up to uh, over over time. You know, and I think I I like the song Spoon Man because it's not about darkness. It's about artists, the Spoon Man, this guy that played spoons throughout Seattle, and it's about the city and about the interesting artistic musical undercurrents that were going on there. And I think that's what drew me specifically to that song, even though on the surface it seems kind of dumb, you know, <laughs> Spoon Man coming together with your hands. It's not about drug use. I don't, I... Yeah, I think that was my original thought. It's hard not to find Spoon Man if you, if you live in Seattle. And he finds you. Yeah, you just someday you'll be walking down the street and you'll be hearing these rhythms and and uh, you'll run into this guy hitting himself in the head with spatulas and it's kind of a memorable experience. He's like the accordion guy in Rochester. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but the Spoon Man does play the spoons on on the song, so that that stuff you hear is actually him playing. That's him. That's him on the record. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This record has all sorts of weird stuff like that. There's like weird production choices yeah. all scattered throughout it. It's kind of bizarre. Have you ever watched somebody play the spoons, Andy? They're like whacking yeah. it on their legs and their, you know, their yeah. whole body. I mean, that's <laughs> the spoons. They're they're whacking the spoons. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enough utensil talk, I think. Uh, all right. So from from the the more lighthearted sort of bits of Spoon Man and to the the darkness we talk about, let's listen to a little bit of Mailman. song there's a couple sludgy slow stoner rock songs on this album that just yeah. lap up like a little kitten like oh my <laughs> gosh that song is about a, an upset postal worker coming back to uh, get revenge on his boss yeah it's pretty dark lyrically it's very dark lyrically but man i love that guitar sound so much it sounds so good to me yeah kim thale is amazing yeah no, I, I really came to appreciate the guitar on this record. Listening to it closely, there's a lot of really interesting, nuanced things happening that I didn't pick up when I was a younger lad. Um, the three words I used to describe this album are one gnarly beast. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a long record. As you know, it was common at the time. 
man, there's so many like just badass things happening on this record, in my opinion. Uh, I really found it uh, even more rewarding to come back to as, you know, kind of a more mature music listener now. Yeah, they really did create like kind of a unique sound here. I mean, we uh, got me wondering, like, was this really the beginning of like the stoner rock sound on this album or... But yeah, I was saying earlier, there's just a lot of like really strange effects and production choices. And, you know, obviously they switch up the guitar tunings, like a couple, you know, from track to track, it sounds different. There's all these like weird production choices. There's like strange like background sounds I was starting to hear listening to this on like headphones, like weird things, man. Yeah, it's a very adventurous listen, I would say. I, I, it's heavy and it's slow, but there's a lot of little nuance stuff too. So. Yeah. At the time of this album, I was like in my 20s and I loved it because I loved songs on it. But as a whole listen, it was a little too much for me. I was waiting for songs like Fell on Black Days and Super Unknown and Black Hole Sun and Spoon Man and even uh, like The Day I Tried to Live. Those were the songs I was waiting for because there's just so much to digest in it listening to it now and over the years there it definitely is so much more and i can get lost and kind of live in it and i i couldn't before i'd always jump out <laughs> at certain mm-hmm. times you know right i think it's pretty consistent man i really didn't find myself disliking any of the songs coming back to it and even like the more bizarre tracks like uh half towards the end of the record i found that really interesting i thought for for a seattle group at this time to bring in like indian influences into a song was just kind of like strange or unexpected at least yeah for sure so the more accessible tracks would include this one this is fell on black days I would say that's you know always been my my favorite um, Soundgarden song. Uh, of course, that one was written by by Chris Cornell, and it has uh, an odd time signature. Just like a, a lot of songs uh, on the album, there's some with five four and seven four. This one's in in six four time, which apparently mm-hmm. it's just one two three four five six instead of one two three four. I never really understand why that makes a difference, but it does. And you know that song does kind of have uh, an unusual sound just because of that that time mm-hmm. signature. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the the moodiness of uh, of of this album and and that song. Uh, I'll start. I, I'll just be a, a little negative here. The three words I, I chose to describe the album are "Where's the melody?" <laughs> and this is maybe more a comment on grunge in general, I think, than specifically this album because I, I think as far as Soundgarden albums go, or this could be the the most melodic. But <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a lot of grunge. I know it's about like the raw energy, right? And that I love that uh, about grunge. But when they do try to be more melodic, it's often just within a very short range of of notes. You know, it's black hole sun, won't you come? You know, it's just yeah, yeah. just kind of droning and uh, whatever. <laughs> I think you know uh, on previous albums it was much more screamy from Chris Cornell, and I think this album there was that balance where those moments, those parts that softer part of his voice was a build up you're waiting for the wail right like yeah. when his voice 
takes off to the heavens and, and that that at least that's how I have always processed this. Yeah, that's a good point. Because so if if most of the album is or most of the song is kind of monochromatic or monotone or whatever, then you can contrast at the end with having him scream that line at a at a much in a much higher <laughs> register. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a uh, that's a good point. It makes it hard to sing along with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can nail it. You can get in that range with him when he's down there in the right. middle. You're singing along in the car and then how would I know yeah. happens? And it's like, no, yeah. I can't. I can't. So much easier to sing along with. <laughs> Death Cab for Cutie. <laughs> or Eddie Vedder or, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I like this album a lot. And it's definitely more colorful, you know, than, than Bad Motor Finger, I, I think. Yeah. So I love this album. I think it's a landmark record. I think it took the grunge thing and threw it on its back. And then they just did whatever they wanted. And, and it was awesome. I'm going to nominate this for the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. We've spoken about this 15-track masterwork quite a bit here, so I'm just going to say landmark album, love it, nominating, yes. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think this is probably up there with, I think, the best albums that come out of this era, the grunge movement, Uh, if not, you know, maybe not number one, but definitely 1A or 1B, in my opinion, so yeah. Yes, for me as well. Yeah, if you're pulling out, you know, a, a few grunge records to to put in a Hall of Fame, you know, I, you'd have Nirvana, Nevermind, probably Pearl Jam, Ten, and I think this probably belongs uh, alongside those. So I'll vote yes. So welcome, Soundgarden Super Unknown to the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. And uh, if you haven't listened to that record in a while, go. It's seventy minutes well spent. Okay, so we took a, a trip to Seattle. What did we learn? Um, what did we learn? I mean, one thing that always comes up whenever I look into the grunge era in music, a lot of bands just kind of find themselves lumped in with that sound that maybe aren't traditionally right. part of grunge. Even that Soundgarden record we listened to, I feel like that's more metal than really grunge from least for my True. ear. So I feel like grunge is really more just like a time period you know, in music like than just a sounds per se. I agree. Yeah, it was bands from Seattle that formed in the 80s and had their peaks in the 90s <laughs> pretty <Yeah>. much <laughs> yeah. like mtv did a good job of you know making that a thing right yeah i feel like it's yeah. more of a marketing machine <laughs> result than any sort of you know genre delegation but on the other hand i mean i can't i mean other than the obvious american cities so like new york la and san francisco like i, I can't really think of another town that i associate with a, a musical movement about uh new orleans or, oh well yeah but not in not when it comes to like pop music though well no i guess i'm stupid because like memphis and tennis and nashville and nashville, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think of a couple things you know like uh the san francisco thing in the late 60s you know how that was a scene the uh sunset strip in la and the early 80s that was a scene for like Mm. the the glam metal stuff and by the time this happened the music industry had figured out how to how to strip mine a a, a scene like that and how to package it and how Mm. to make it about the city of seattle and make it about flannel shirts and and i think that's part of why it was the grunge part i mean there were plenty of great artists coming from seattle before that lots lots it's a big city lots of great musicians but that period also it was the last time where there was a pure musical movement that meant something to a lot of people Mm -hmm. the second to last time that mtv was able to shape youth culture after the seattle thing there was the boy band stuff and then the new metal stuff and then they became irrelevant so thanks new metal (laughs) 
I really am an idiot because there's like a million cities that are associated, like Detroit and Motown. And <laughs> right. <laughs> so you learn nothing. And that's one to grow on. <laughs> I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. All right, gather around, boys and girls. It's time to pull back the veil and take a peek at what Destiny has in store for our eardrums next week. Please welcome my friend and yours, the Wheel of Musical Destiny. That doesn't sound like Bob, but I know. What's going on? We got reverse Grinched. (laughs) (laughs) We've been hijacked by the holidays. So it looks like... Fate has been disrupted by uh, the holidays, as is our lives turned upside down at holiday time. So we will be we will be uh, doing our annual album nerds podcast holiday spectacular. Well, doesn't that sound special? Yeah, exploring some of our favorite holiday albums and friends and family and associates can chime in as well. All right, can't wait for some of that holiday cheer. Don't forget. You can suggest topics for the Wheel of Music Destiny at our website, albumnerds.com. You can also vote for any ongoing Album Nerds Hall of Fame nominee. Right, what's your favorite holiday album? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow Album Nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Album Nerds. And please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you so much for joining us on the Album Nerds Podcast. We'll catch you next time with some happy, happy holidays. Thanks for listening. Did any Seattle groups do holiday albums? Is there Eddie Vedder? Take the halls with Bowser Holly. <laughs> that sounded more like uh, Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> Up on the housetop, reindeer paws. No. Nope. <laughs> 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 it's close. <laughs> <laughs>